Hello and welcome to another episode of Mostly Weather. I'm Catherine Ross and we're back in the Lantern Room here at the Met Office about to engage in another fascinating conversation about the weather. Today it's one of our Hall of Fame episodes, actually that's the 3rd of 2019. The Hall of Fame is essentially a virtual showcase of leading figures of meteorology who we think ought to be more out there. And so far this year we've inducted two people, that's Lewis Fry Richardson, one of my nominees, and James Lovelock who was nominated by our very own Niall Robinson. Uh, so all those episodes are available on our SoundCloud, Apple Podcast app and other mobile apps generally if you want to go back and listen to them. Today I'm joined by two Met Office meteorologists who'd like to together suggest hanging another plaque on our rather crowded wall. Uh, let me first introduce to you Jodie Ramsdale. Hi, um, yes I'm a trainer in the college here at the Met Office. Um, I also do some of our explainer videos as well which is where I first came across our nominee for today. And what are our explainer videos? What sort of things do they do? They cover a lot of um, lot of content. Um, we've got explainers on the jet stream, so anything that you want to, to learn to learn about, um, they're on our YouTube channel, the, the Met Office Learn About Weather YouTube channel. Um, so yeah, check it out. Okay, and did you do anything before you were in the college? I was a I was a weather forecaster. So uh-huh. <laughs> start, started off. So I've been in the office now for sixteen years. Started off uh, forecasting for our defence side of um, defence side, and uh, then um, really just started in the college as a trainer. Oh, 10 years ago now. <laughs> Scary thoughts. <laughs> and sitting next to Jodie, we've got Aidan McGiven, a newbie to this podcast, but you do contribute regularly to our sister weekly show, Weathersnap, don't you, Aidan? That's right. I recorded one earlier today, in fact. Um, and how about, Aidan, you give us three interesting facts about yourself? Oh, as many as three. Okay, uh, I'm colourblind. I have the same colour vision as your average pet dog. Um, I ran away from the circus to join the Met Office. And finally, I was the first meteorologist in space. By the way, (laughs) one of those facts is made up. Hmm, I was going to ask what you were doing in the circus. Uh, Well, I grew up, when I grew up, I I was in a little circus in my spare time and I uh, learned how to fire juggle, ride a unicycle. And so I like to say that I ran away from the circus to become a meteorologist and weather presenter. I've got this amazing image of you fire juggling whilst giving a weather forecast, possibly riding unicycle at the same time. It has to be done. Something for the next 10 day trend. So. Absolutely. <laughs> we should add that Aidan is a meteorologist and does appear regularly on TV. <laughs> I felt I had to make one fact up because we've been reading about all these Victorian scientists who seem to have achieved so much. They were explorers and scientists and doctors all at the same time. Makes you feel a little bit inferior. <laughs> yes, we'll come on to that possibly in a, in a few minutes. Um, so we, what do you think sort of qualifies someone for the Hall of Fame? Why should they be in it? I think uh, on the basis of their achievements, how they've contributed to the science of meteorology and how they have helped make our jobs more more interesting and easier to, to undertake. Mm-hmm. Definitely something that um, we still, to this day, I mean, even with our supercomputing you know to this day we are still using some of the concepts from these these people have developed in the past so something along those lines definitely very yeah. interesting yeah so that takes us neatly into jody who's your nominee well the nominee for the hall of fame today um i'd like to put forward is alexander bucken 
Okay, now why Alexander Buchan? Tell us a little bit about him. Well, I guess from from his name, you might be able to guess that he's uh, um, from Scotland. Um, And he was born in uh, 1829. Um, But he might be one of the most underrated um, uh, people of uh, meteorological history. Um, something that I came across purely by accident. Um, dare I share the, the? Yes, I will share the story. You must. Of <laughs> <laughs> how um, c- coming into this? I mean, a lot of people in the Met Office haven't actually heard of, of Alexander Buchan, and as I said, I came to it from a fairly roundabout route. We had a book in our downstairs toilet at home that my husband um, told me about. That well-known so, library. Yes, yes. So I don't want to give away any bathroom secrets here. But yeah, it's um, the best way to find out <laughs> lots of information, isn't it? It's good to have some factual books in there. Yes. Um, but the more I um, the more I looked into Alexander Buchan, um, the more things I found and um, things that still to this day have shaped how we actually do our forecasts and meteorology. So I think somebody definitely worthy of the Hall of Fame. Um, and Aidan, why do you agree? Well, I work alongside Jodie when we put together these videos that go on our Learn About Weather channel on YouTube. And like so many other people in the Met Office, I hadn't heard of this Buchan chap. Um, and I was a bit sceptical about whether it would make a good video. But once Jodie uh, scripted it and, and I read it and watched the video, I thought, wow, that is really interesting. And, and lots of fundamental things that we um, do in meteorology were as a result of him. And I think it's... Um your boss's favourite video of all the ones we have on the Learn About Weather channel as well. <laughs> I think I think so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's kind of really interesting to, to try and place these people sort of in their context. I mean, we've got Buchan, this, you know, underrated, but I think in his time, reasonably well-known scientist. Certainly he became much more famous after his time. Yes. But, um, you know, and he was working, as, as I think we'll find out, sort of in, mm. in, the, in the field of, sort of synoptic meteorology and working with pressure. Um, but he wasn't the only person sort of in that field at the time. And it, it's amazing how sort of four people run at a subject at the same time. And then sort of one theory will sort of come out of that. Um, and certainly we find in the archives, we've got things that um, we've got Abercrombie working on the 1860s, which just sort of start to feed into this. He was sort of theories and ideas, but never really took it to actually publication. Um, and then we've got the head of the Met Office um, in the 1860s, uh, Henry Toynbee, who's also working on pressure. Um, and he actually gets quite a long way quite a long way down the road but never really sort of adds things up in quite the same way as Buchan he really was sort of a man a bit ahead of his time wasn't he definitely yes yeah um, I mean, there's so much, so much scientific advancement but um, quite a lot of people I think we, we sort of tend to find you know, they're not they're not um, professionals at, at one thing. You know, they they, they said they sort of an, an amateur this, an amateur mm. that, and brilliant at just about everything, as as, as Aidan was pointing out. And in fact, so. I think um, Buchan was an amateur meteorologist, uh, oceanographer, and botanist. So it just shows well, the breadth of his interests and skills. Yeah, and you know, just a few weeks ago, we were talking about you know, celebrating some of our women in meteorology, and we came across Eleanor Ormerod, who started off as an entomologist of all things, and finished up um, a, a leading uh, meteorologist or leading in the field of meteorology. Mm-hmm. I should say. They were proper polymaths, weren't they? And, and this is a period of time, the Victorian era, in which 
Meteorology changed from weather law back in the early 19th century to more scientific studies of weather patterns and using weather maps with the help of the invention of the electronic telegraph that then you could compile all this information from further afield and draw maps. And it was from that that they could start to study weather patterns and eventually predict the weather. Yeah, we really get the sort of the dawn of the science of meteorology, don't we? And mm. that's obviously still still with us now. Mm, I can imagine it's quite an exciting time. It must have been. So Jodie, tell us about the early years of Buck and how he sort of how he gets to being in the weather. Well, it's his roots to um he is known by some people as the father of meteorology, but actually okay. his his roots to this mantle was, was not direct at all. He started out as a school teacher. Um so I think he was a school teacher at the Free Church School in Dunblane, um, and later on becoming a head teacher. Um but the he was uh, really, he was a really good teacher, but unfortunately, he uh, had a throat affliction, which gave him a bit of a squeaky tone to his oh voice. Dear. <laughs> which you can imagine that you know, trying to get uh, the you know, classroom under under wraps and you know, um, everyone in in line was uh, it didn't help having a bit of a squeaky. <laughs> it's going to be a challenge, isn't That's it? Yes. Right. So, um, so that really sort of put the end to his sort of vocation as a teacher. Um, but what was really interesting also at the time was that he was um, talking about other people um, uh, in the in the science as well. He he was following Livingston with the with the explosion. Ah, Doctor Livingston, I presume. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So um, he was actually marking on the relatively blank map of Africa at the time all of the rivers and maps that um, rivers and lakes that uh, Livingston was actually finding at the same time. Um, but anyway, sorry, I digress. Um, just all these exciting things happening at the same time. Shows he was interested in maps, though, map that's, making. That's yeah. right. So um, he, uh, so Buchan actually then joined he, the um, Scottish Meteorological Society. I think it was about 1860. They were they they fo- uh, formed only five years earlier. So mm. they were looking for a secretary. Um, so he actually um, joined them. And even though he had he had no um, links to meteorology at the time, uh, he did demonstrate a good understanding of of how weather sort of impacts everything. Um, so yeah, he was he was given the post, and from there history is made. So we say. <laughs> So when did he first display sort of an interest in the weather? Where do we where do we first see that coming up? Well, it's really, um, it started off, I think he was collating lots of observations data as part of his role as a secretary. He, okay. he actually did a lot of the journals that the Scottish Meteorological Society produced. And as part of that, he was collating a lot of the observations um, of um, sort of weather observations. So um, from from there onwards, really, um, he started to get an insight into climatology, um, and I think he, as a amateur botanist, he also had an idea of how the weather then started to affect crops as well. So I think it was looking at temperature and soil um, productivity. He was actually able to then look at how crops, the price of crops, would change. Okay. So yes, so there are various clever. links that he's been using all his various interests like botany and and then eventually into the meteorology and these things sort of followed through. So he was very much looking for, for patterns and, and trends in, in, in weather and well, in climate. He, yes, that's yeah. right. So he collated a lot of the climate data for um, for Scotland. Okay. Um, and I, I've, I've heard of, of, of something called Buchan spells. Can, can someone enlighten me? Well, I guess by looking at these different patterns, 
that he was able to compile over many, many years. He came up with certain times of year when you get either a rise in temperature or a dip in temperature. And this isn't the same as expecting cold weather in the winter or hot weather in the summer. It's within individual months. It's certain spells of weather that you often get. For example, at the beginning of February, you might get a slight dip in temperature um, year to year. And he came up with uh, a number of warm spells and, and cold spells, as he called them, um, through the year by looking at all these different weather patterns. Mm. In fact, there are three warm and six cold periods. So the first one, the first cold period that he suggested was the week leading up to Valentine's Day. And we are shortly to go into the into the next cold period, the 11th to 14th of April is the next cold period. Mm. Um, so uh, we'll have to check our 10-day trend to see whether or not we... Uh, <laughs> Are we that looking will, at that? Yes, but he, even so, I mean, he um, he's he by gathering all these inf- this information together from the observations, um, he uh, he himself has said that these dates aren't fixed. So uh, I think I've got a, a uh, thing that he said here: the commencement of each of these more anomalous periods is subject to variation from year to year. So even he has said that these these times do do move around. It's an easy way to get away with. Quite. Whether that was just a, a way of him trying to get out of it a little bit, a um, bit of a caveat, so to speak. But um, uh, yes, yeah, so we're looking at um, six six cold periods, um, which are um, 7th to 14th of February, 11th to 14th of April, 9th to 14th of May, 29th to June to the 4th of July, 16th of August, I'm nearly there, and the 6th to the 13th of November. So there's quite quite a few of them where we're looking at colder than average is really what we're, we're talking about with with warmer periods of 12th to the 15th of July, 12th to 15th of August and 3rd to 4th of December. So there mm-hmm. are some ones to look out for, some warmer than average periods I as well. I guess these could be thought of as if you've got a gradual rise in temperature from the middle of winter to the middle of summer, then these are a bit of, uh, these are dips or, or bumps in that. Uh, Little overall. fluctuations. Yeah. 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 And actually, we, we spoke to uh, Dr. Mark McCarthy, a climate scientist here at the Met Office, and he showed us that there is a dip around Valentine's Day that is evident in the modern records. So yes. perhaps there is an element of truth. That's oh, fascinating. Yes. Yeah. Although it didn't occur this year. I think we were two degrees above average, I think, <laughs> yeah. weren't we? Oh, well, he did say it doesn't always happen. Well, that's true, yes. <laughs> Okay, so we've talked about buck and spells there, and we're, we're in early April here, so coming up for Easter. Um, so, have they, have, how have they been used as sort of as a relevance to this time of year? Well, Easter, interesting. Everyone knows that the date of Easter changes year to year. Not many people really know why it changes or how we decide the date for Easter. And it turns out it's very complicated. (laughs) I don't know if you you are fans of Father Ted, but I'm tempted to borrow a a phrase from Father Ted, the episode Tentacles of Doom, in which he (laughs) teaches um, the alcoholic priest Father Jack to respond to difficult questions with the phrase that would be an ecumenical matter. And that pretty much sums up the uh, calculation for the date of Easter, because it's complicated. The short answer is that Easter falls on the first Sunday following the first full moon, following the spring equinox. And of course, that's based on the church church dating of the equinox, which is the 21st of March. So it's all sort of tied down to one date. We we know that the equinox varies year to year, (laughs) 19th to the 21st of March, but the church has tied it down to the 21st of March 
as a fixed date and it's not the actual full moon because that varies and that all depends on the church's definition of the ecclesiastical lunar month. In other words, it's an ecumenical matter <laughs> and it's highly complicated. So it's no surprise that people have wanted to fix the date of Easter to make it a lot more straightforward and also avoid it clashing with term time of schools, universities and and various bank holidays in May and so yes, on. If it comes late, it, they all, all the bank holidays come together, don't they? Rather That's as right, they will yeah. this year. <laughs> yeah. So um, there was an act that was passed by Parliament in 1928 to fix the date of Easter and that act was passed. Um, however, the date that they fixed it to, I think, was uh, between the 9th and the 15th of April. So they said that every year from now on, it will be between the 9th and the 15th of April. So it's the second April. Sunday after the second eight, uh, Saturday in April, something like that. Doing yeah, the very first Sunday after the second That's Saturday the in April. <laughs> Sorry, thank you very it's much. no less complicated <laughs> than the full moon version. <laughs> but it's more stable, it's yes. more fixed. <laughs> Um, however, those of you who are listening carefully to Jody's cold spell list will notice that that date coincides with one of the six cold spells from Buchan. And even at the time they were thinking about this act, it was pointed out. So by this time, I think Buchan was... was um, had died. It's 60 years yes, on from his work. Years, that was yeah. it, yes. Um, so some people, so his his work was, was still around um, after his death. And clearly still being referred to on a regular basis. So even yeah. though people pointed that out, they still, the act was still passed. Yeah, but the churches around the world have to agree to this for it to happen. It's not down to the UK Parliament. Even though that act was passed, it hasn't changed the date to a fixed date of Easter. And the year after the act was passed, Easter was a bit earlier, it was in March, and it coincided with one of Buchan's warm spells, and it was a warm Easter. And then that April, around the time that the, if the act had have been enforced, around the time that Easter would have fallen, it ended up being particularly cold. And so people were saying this Buchan chap was correct. His warm spells and cold spells are spot on. And uh, it made him more famous than he was during his life. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you, I, I know that there was uh, reports in Ireland at the time of, of that, that um, for, for his foresight, there were, they were, they were people saying he should be canonised and promptly made a saint, which I guess mm-hmm. could make him a saint of meteorology. Yes, yes. <laughs> Um, so following on fr- from that, that Easter connection, we've, we've got sort of something perhaps sort of more long, long lasting, and more important really with Buchan, which is, is these, um, his connection with synoptic charts. Um, so you know, what happened prior to compiling forecasts using synoptic charts? What was going on then? You know, it's hard to imagine a time when we didn't have a synoptic chart showing us the weather with highs and lows and so on. Uh, but before the isobar was put into common usage, they used to map pressure on weather maps using deviations from the average pressure rather than joining lines of equal pressure, which is what isobars are. And so when Buchan decided to start using lines of equal pressure, isobars, on weather maps, then it it made a lot more sense and started to tell us a lot more about what's going on in our atmosphere. A lot of fundamental rules of meteorology came out from him doing that as well, in terms of in the northern hemisphere, winds around an area of low pressure go in an anti-clockwise direction. And the, the fact that if isobars are close together, we have stronger winds. It was by him doing this, by putting these lines on the chart, that these fundamental rules that we use today that underpin 
everything that we know about looking at these charts. Um, that's where it first came from. Fascinating. And we can actually tell if we look at some of the charts in the archive, we can see that his ideas come into, into practice really, really quickly. Um, I've got a couple here examples <laughs> of, sort of charts from 1867. So this is just before he publishes his book um, where he's talking about isobars and actually plotting them um, and showing examples of these nice curving isobars around a structure. And, and you, can, you can see on here what Aidan was talking about, plotting you know, the, 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 point, the, the, the lines of, of difference. Um, and it looks absolutely nothing like an isobar <laughs> and nothing, frankly, usable in any sensible way. I have to say, I don't understand this. I could not <laughs> tell what the weather was from this. Yes, I not even sure most people at the time could either. Um, and then we, we switched to, you know, to 1868 uh, and then we immediately have isobars. So it just shows how quickly his ideas were taken on board. They must have really thought they were useful and, and usable going forwards. And they weren't usable because in 1868 as well, he managed to track a storm that was in North America across the Atlantic and into North Europe using weather maps and pressure lines and so on. Yes, all of which kind of helps prove you know, that, that that theory is really workable in practice. So, Jodie, how, how do you how do you draw a synoptic chart? And how do you read it? Well, it all starts off with the surface observations. There we, we have observations of wind, pressure, um, weather, um, whether it's raining, um, and it's something that is all put together on a large synoptic map. So synoptic, I believe, means sort of you know, all together, and uh, it's something that we teach at the college in that by looking at this map of observations you just get a real feel for what the weather is doing um, by draw by we draw we teach drawing the isobars on the map mm-hmm. we still do that and it's something that um, when i was a was a forecaster on the bench it'd be the first job i would do of the day it, by just by doing that joining the dots of the isobars you're looking at what the weather is doing across your large area across the whole UK, for example, um, and you can just get a real feel um, of what the weather is doing just by looking at these observations, by drawing these lines, these isobars, and by putting the map together. I was always jealous of people, and I'm sure you're one of these people, Jodie, who can draw perfect, these smooth isobars, and you know it will look like a work of art because mine were just messy scribbles with lots of rubbing out and and um, smudges and all sorts but I used to do it regularly yeah. because yeah. it was so important yeah. to find out what was going on in fact yeah. you could just look at one pressure chart and really much give a forecast for that day from all the information that it gives you I think I was always in awe of the people who could literally that they would be drawing on one side of, of the map and their eyes would be looking further upwind for where for where, to, where, where <laughs> where's it coming yes, from yes yeah. so they would they would do it just so quickly and, and it was an art it was a skill yeah I mean it's it's it's, it's sort of interesting sort of a legacy of Buchan you, know, you can still see all of our charts on the website and actually historically you can see all the others on the in the archive both paper and electronic um, and and you can see you know, not not just you know those isobars but how they tell us the story of the weather you can see the kinks and and the cold fronts and warm fronts that will then be associated with that. Um, the station circle was around beforehand, but you can see how that then allows us to plot the isobars. Um, so, so it all comes together, and, and it's still very much out there, you know, on our on our weather on our website every day. Mm, and it's still something we teach our forecasters as well, and even people just on um, for basic weather in order to how to look at these charts and know what it is that they're looking at. There's mm. so many different features on these maps that if you don't know what they are, can be 
be really quite confusing. Yeah, and it's amazing when you look at these maps, just how much detail they give you in terms of where the air is coming from, where these clouds and rain bands and cold and warm air masses are flowing. And of course, it was during this Victorian age that we went from weather law and not having the foggiest in terms of what was coming our way to being able to map the weather across the Atlantic and North America, see these lows and highs and where they're moving. And it's amazing that in a few decades we went, uh, we start. Do that again, sorry, do that bit again, thank you. And it's incredible to think that in just a few decades in the 19th century, these weather maps were created. Yeah, we came so far in such a short time, didn't we? Um, so kind of in a nutshell, why do you think, we've, I mean, we talked about Buchan, clearly he's a really important guy, but you know, in a nutshell, why should he be inducted into the Hall of Fame? I think he's an unsung hero. I mean, there's, a, there's an award named after him. I think our own Julia Slingo won it in 1998. Yes, you're absolutely right. So that's for original contributions to meteorology. So he is this unsung hero. As I said, a lot of people don't know about him, but the things that he has come across uh, are still with us today and have shaped the how we do the forecasting today. Absolutely. Aidan, anything to add? <laughs> oh, well, I grew up with um, isobars, looking at them on the TV weather in the newspaper, and they helped me learn a lot about weather and uh, drive my passion for the weather and how to forecast it. So I think I for a lot of people, they're the way into the weather, yeah. aren't they? So I, I think, yeah, we can, we can confirm that we will induct um, Alexander Buchan into the Hall of Fame. I think he absolutely belongs on the wall with the rest of our heroes there. Um, thank you very much, Jodie and Aidan, for sharing with us the life of Alexander Buchan. Uh, I believe there's a short form film about him still on our website. So do go and have a look at that if you'd like to learn a little bit more um, and remember our weather snap podcasts giving you the week's weather news is out there every wednesday and we'll be back very soon with another episode of mostly weather so goodbye goodbye, goodbye. today's producer was claire nazir and editor was simon hammett mostly weather is a podcast from the uk met office